0: JogCast, doing the Einstein twist, with Megan Argo, Melanie Jones, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Tim O'Brien and Mark Herbert. The JogCast, May 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The JogCast, I'm Libby Jones and joining me today is Mark and Melanie. Hello. Hello. In this month's extra show we have exciting new results from Herschel, Dr. Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions, and first, before all of that, we
1: have more interviews from the National Astronomical Meeting in London, No. Um, Okay, so I'm talking to Karen Masters, who is here on behalf of LOFAR. So, tell us all about LOFAR. Uh, LOFAR stands for the Low Frequency Array. Um, It's a pan-European radio
2: telescope. Uh, It's got stations, uh, the the bulk of it is in the Netherlands, and it's run out of the Netherlands, Um, but there's also stations in Germany and Sweden, uh, France and the UK. Uh, The UK station is in Hampshire and it has uh, almost 200 antennas um, literally in a field actually Um, right over the fence they grow the mushrooms that they sell at Waitrose (laughs) so it's really a a nice rural location away from all all sources of uh, or many sources of FM radio Um, lo works at two frequency bands just below and just above the FM radio bands it has two types of antennas that do that Um, the low band antennas they look a little bit like tents, but without canvas. One of the fun things about LoFar um, is that the, the station in the UK was actually built with the help of volunteer uh, labour. the The low band antennas, the LBA's, um, were quite simple to put together, and so we didn't need any kind of massive technical expertise. So students and, and postdocs from universities in the in the in the, the, the southeast of, of the UK and the SETnet. Uh, region, including uh, lots of people from the University of Portsmouth, where I work, um, went to Gibraltar and we spent a week uh, commuting to Gibraltar and going and building these antennas and we built 96 of the LBAs in a week. It's quite fun because all the bits are sent from the Netherlands, it's a little bit like a flat pack telescope, Um, so these two lorries arrived with all the parts and then we had to put it together. The high band antennas were a little bit more complicated and were were put together uh, with the help of uh, forklift trucks and professionals a little bit later in the summer and uh, the UK station was opened in September by Jocelyn Bell and we had a nice opening ceremony and we had the first light image um, including the UK station the French station and one of the German stations along with the Netherlands uh, The stations, in, several of the stations in the Netherlands I think they have almost 30 now working in the Netherlands um, that first light image was produced uh, earlier this year and uh, showed the massive increase in resolution you get when you go from just the core in the Netherlands to including these outer um, international stations or making the International LOFAR Telescope. It's a multi-acronym
1: acronym, <laughs> I-L-T. So what kind of science is LOFAR intended to do? Uh, LOFAR has several key science
2: uh, goals. One of the biggest is probably to trying to detect the epoch of reionization. Um So this is the period in the universe when the first stars turned on. Um, So if you go right back to the Big Bang, um, you have sort of the hot plasma at the Big Bang. And we know people probably have heard of the CMB radiation. That's when the electrons first combined with protons and the protons free-streamed across the universe. After that time, the universe was full of neutral hydrogen, just hydrogen atoms floating around and very little structure. There were no stars, no galaxies, nothing like that. Very slowly, stuff collected under gravity, and eventually um, parts of the universe got dense enough for the first stars to turn on. When that happens, the first stars ionise all that neutral hydrogen, and that's what we call re-ionisation. Now, neutral hydrogen emits a radio, a very characteristic radio uh, line at 21 centimetres, redshifted by these massive redshifts in the early universe. That's in the frequency range detectable by LOFAR, we hope. And we hope that we're going to detect this step when all of that neutral hydrogen suddenly gets ionised um, and pin down the time at which the first stars were born in the universe.
1: OK, so they, the hydrogen gets ionised and it stops emitting that 21 centimetre that, line. That's
2: exactly right, yeah. And so you should what you should see is this global step. You have lots of 21 centimetre radiation and then suddenly you have very little. Um, and think fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, LOFAR can also do lots of other science, like, for example, it's very, very very good at detecting pulsars. Um, We're going back to the old way that we detected pulsars, back in the 60s, um, sort of wires in a field. But now we've got 3,000 of them, uh, 5,000 of them, sorry, all over Europe, uh, making currently
1: the largest radio telescope in the world, the most sensitive radio telescope in the world. And presumably much more powerful computers than you had back in the 1960s.
2: Much, much, much more powerful computers. As I understand it, Jocelyn Bell detected pulsars by rolling strips of paper across the floor of her office. Um, LOFAR is controlled by a supercomputer in the Netherlands and wouldn't be possible without the uh, fiber high-speed internet through fibre optics. Um, actually, if you consider the UK station, that the parts, the components, that, you know, the physical hardware, is a negligible fraction of the cost. What we're spending all the money on is the high-speed internet connection to the Netherlands.
1: So how does LOFAR fit in with all the other telescopes that are currently being built around the world in the lead-up to things like the Square Kilometre Array?
2: Well, is really a pathfinder for the SKA. It's really the first of its, of its kind of this new generation of radio telescopes which have very simple components but are uh, enabled by the massive increases in computing that we've had in the future. Europe is really leading the way in this field. The, 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 in the US, they're, they're building the lo- long wavelength array, which is rather similar to LOFAR. Um, it's going to be uh, situated
1: somewhere in, western,
2: in the western US. And in Australia, they also have similar telescopes under construction.
1: Okay, so you're also involved with Galaxy Zoo. Tell me a little bit about what you've been doing with that project. Uh, well, the most recent result we've had out from Galaxy Zoo was um, the
2: first result from the Galaxy Zoo 2 classifications. So in Zoo 1 we just asked people to, to decide if the galaxy was spiral or elliptical and in Zoo 2 we asked for a little bit more information. And one of the things that we asked about was whether or not uh, the spiral galaxies or the disc galaxies had bars crossing uh, going across the centre. And this is just a linear structure that, that crosses the centre of you know, between a third and two thirds of spiral galaxies. So we, wanted to, we actually took an early look at the results from that because we got so interested because we saw um, one of my earlier results from Galaxies U was about red spirals. So most spiral galaxies are blue and they're blue because the light that you see in them is dominated by young hot blue stars that are very bright. Um, most ellipticals are red and that's because they're not forming any stars anymore. And those young hot bright blue stars have all died, or died off leaving only the dim red Le- less massive stars. And galaxies. We found this population of spirals that are as red as most ellipticals. And one of the things we noticed about them was that they seemed to have more bars than the normal blue spirals. So we took this early look at, at the bar classifications from Zoo 2 and we found that, that that continued in the whole spiral population, that there's this strong correlation between colour and whether or not the galaxy has a bar. The red spirals are much more likely to have bars than bluer spirals. So that seems really intriguing and, and you know, maybe suggests that bars or sort of internal evolution from a bar might be doing more to the spirals than we we previously thought. Um, What a bar does is because it's not symmetric, it's not axially symmetric, it breaks the symmetry in the disk and so it it lets uh, material move in and out along the bar, basically. Um, So that's really curious. But I think actually my current theory is that the bars are more of a side effect. Um, Once the spiral becomes red, you're much more likely to have a bar. And the reason is that it turns out bars form really, really quickly in any disc galaxy. So the, the big question really is why some don't have it. And actually, it turns out that the, that's probably related to them killing themselves. And um, because they move material in and out along along the bar, um, once they form, they basically self destruct. Um, is is one of the theories that's going around. You know, uh, that people have done work on. But, but it seems that once you get rid of the gas in a galaxy, um, and the gas would be the fuel for star formation, so the red spirals we think don't have a lot of this gas because they're no longer forming stars, that's what's turned them red. Um, so you've got rid of the gas, and so once you build the bar, it's, it sticks around for ages. Um, I think that's probably what's going on, and what I've been working on lately is, is trying to look at the, um, whether or not spiral galaxies that have more gas in them, and more fuel for star formation, are more likely to have bars or not.
1: OK, cool. So, yeah, you think about galaxies as having lots of gas in them and that gas being used up in, in star formation, mm-hmm. but there's lots of other ways it can get dissipated as well, aren't there? Well,
2: that's right, actually. One of the early puzzles about the Milky Way, actually, if you count the amount of gas that is in the disk of the Milky Way and you count the amount of stars that are forming, um, you quite quickly come to the realisation that, that you're going to use up all the, the gas really, really quickly. And so th- there was this model that came up that, uh, that there must be gas raining onto the disk of the galaxy from a hot halo. So what we think is probably going on with the red spirals is that that, that gas that's up in, the hot, up in the halo, up in, you know, high off the disc and is very hot, has been stripped off. So there's no source of replenishment for the gas in the disc. And that's what, co- that's what's, ultimately, that's what's causing the spirals to become red and, and making them be more likely to have a bar. And what, what gets rid of the gas in the halo? Um, it would be an interaction probably with another galaxy. Um, it would be because either because the spiral is is falling into a more massive halo and then all the light gas gets stripped off into the more massive halo or maybe some sort of companion galaxy has come through and taken off all the gas
1: so these red spirals sort of you see them more in galaxy groups and clusters and things
2: yeah there 's quite a, a clear uh, correlation that they 're more likely to be present in intermediate environments. We actually see them in all environments. Um, which tells you that it can't be a really strong environmental process. It can't be something like an interaction with a cluster, or it can't be something that requires a cluster that's, caused, that's turning them red. But this sort of gentle stripping off of gas in the halo can happen at quite low densities, can happen uh, pretty much anywhere, but it is more likely to happen
1: in intermediate environments, and so that's what makes you think that's a good candidate for the, the process um so galaxy is doing all these all these really cool things what's what's sort of next what's on the horizon for the galaxy zoo as a project as a whole
2: um well what's running now at, at the galaxy zoo website is www.galaxyzoo.org is um is hubble zoo and this is instead of uh zoo one and zoo two used images from the sloan digital sky survey uh, so those are very local galaxies effectively i um, obviously they're a long long way away by human <laughs> scales but there's a the galaxy you know really close by on galactic scales um In Hubble Zoo, we've moved to images from the Hubble Space Telescope, and these are now galaxies that are much, much further away, about half the age of the universe away. Um, And so what we're hoping to do is be able to look at the evolution of morphology over the history of the universe. And so one thing in particular, we can look at how bars differed um, when the universe was half its current age and then they are now, and and
1: all sorts of other things as well. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Look forward to hearing about it. Thanks very much. Thanks for that, Megan.
3: And now here's Jen talking to Haley Gomez about using Herschel to look at dust in galaxies.
4: Okay, I'm here with Dr. Haley Gomez from Cardiff University. Welcome to the Jobcast. Thank you. So you work on dust in galaxies. Could you tell us about your research? Uh, well, I use the Herschel Space Observatory, which is uh, the largest uh, telescope flown into space, and it's a, a quite a special camera because it's a far infrared and submillimeter camera, so it detects lights that our eyes can't see. And it's really great because actually there's a lot of dust out there in the universe and the dust blocks our visible light from our eyes and our telescopes, but we can recover that light using something like Herschel that's sensitive to the light from dust. So I'm actually really interested in where dust comes from, so where it's created, how it it goes from something in the gas to being a solid particle, which is what we mean by cosmic dust, and also converting that to to really big surveys with herschel where you get lots and lots of galaxies which have lots of dust in them and trying to figure out what the dust tells you about how those galaxies change with time so when we say dust is this the same kind of dust as you get on earth or is it different Uh, Yeah, that's a really good question. It's not the same dust that we get on Earth, um, which is quite nice, (laughs) because the dust we get on Earth is really gross. Uh, But what we're talking about is dust in space, so all we really mean is uh, we're talking about solid particles, and most of these particles are uh, about the same size of a smoke particle, actually, a few microns across. So... You're talking about things that are made of carbon, uh, iron, glassy materials, sometimes gems, you know, like diamonds, which is quite nice. <laughs> and you've got all these solid particles, and they form out of the gas, a bit like snowflakes form out of the, the water vapour in our atmosphere, and uh, and then they get chucked into the, the galaxies. And so they get formed somewhere, they get chucked into galaxies. And the thing that's really crazy about dust is... It's not very much when you look at the size of it. So, again, it's kind of micron size, smoke-sized particles. But it makes a big difference to the way we view the universe. It blocks uh, at least half of all the light in the, in the universe, actually. All the light from stars and, and, and galaxies is blocked by dust grains. So it changes our view, hides half the universe from us. But it also is very important in helping stars to form. And without it, we wouldn't see molecular hydrogen in galaxies. So it actually may even be crucial for water in the in the space between stars and galaxies. So we're talking about very small, rocky things, and, and a big lump of dust could be the Earth, actually. So the <laughs> Earth is just a huge lump of dust. We're actually bits of d- dust. If we were just floating in space, we'd be considered dust. And so that's kind of what dust is. And it's it's tiny, tiny fraction of the mass of a galaxy, but makes such a big difference in terms of the change of a galaxy and the evolution of stars and and possibly even the building blocks of life as well. So do we find dust in all kinds of galaxies? Well, the quick answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's actually something that's really quite a big question in the infrared community. And and it's fair to say that we're behind the optical astronomers. Optical astronomers have had 400 years of using telescopes uh, to look at the starlight from galaxies. But when you're looking in the infrared, you're looking at the light from the dust the hidden starlight that's been reprocessed by dust um, we've really only been able to do that since the late 90s and that's because the instrumentation and the, the, the technology just hasn't been there and we have to go to space which makes it very expensive because of our own atmosphere but what we do know is that um, if you ask that question now with the telescopes we have like Herschel we're able to say no, spiral galaxies like the Milky Way they have stars forming in them they're kind of slightly more active and um, our Milky Way is forming one star a year and it has spiral arms those galaxies have dust and actually a lot more dust than we can explain in fact but when you look at galaxies that we call ellipticals so they have no spiral arms they're elliptical in shape and they're kind of dead systems they don't have much gas in them and there really seems to be a dearth of dust so there's something in those galaxies that's that's effectively got rid of all the dust in them whereas in spiral galaxies we do see a lot of dust can you just explain a bit about the actual physical process then of how the dust emits this infrared light? You said it's reprocessed starlight. That's right. So you have um, you have starlight, say, and then you put a little bit of uh, dust in the way. So a little bit of carbon or maybe graphite, um, and this dust grain absorbs that starlight. So it just absorbs it. It's the perfect size to absorb the lights and it heats up, it then cools down, and it re-radiates that light at longer wavelengths. So it really is stealing the optical light from our optical telescopes, absorbing it, and then re-emitting it at, or re-radiating that at longer wavelengths. And can we talk a bit about Herschel? So how has Herschel changed things? How many galaxies are we seeing, things like that? Well, Herschel is a huge leap in our um, observational understanding of the universe. Uh, We've gone from... Only seeing, in fact, since the late 90s, we've gone from only seeing at most a hundred objects, and that actually sounds quite a lot. But there are a lot of galaxies in the universe. <laughs> if you compare that to the Hubble data, where you've got hundreds of thousands and millions of them, it's it's quite embarrassing that in this regime we've only been looking at, at hundreds of galaxies, and they've always tended to be very bright or very rare objects, really kind of targeted, and they're not representative of what's actually out there. As an example, uh, the scuba instrument, which was our best you know, state-of-the-art instrument when I started my PhD. I won't say when that was. <laughs> uh, and that actually saw, in 51 hours, of the best weather you can imagine from um, uh, Mauna Kea in Hawaii, it saw, at best, three galaxies, three dusty galaxies, 51 hours of, of, of observational time. Herschel, in 16 hours, detects more than 7,000. Wow. Well. So it's a huge leap in terms of numbers. The Herschel Atlas and the Hermes surveys, which are two big projects on Herschel, will end up getting hundreds of thousands of, of, of these dusty galaxies. Galaxies that you might not actually see in any other wavelengths because they have so much dust, they're just obscuring all the starlight. And we're actually starting to see that infrared galaxies are actually kind of normal. There's some that are really big and bright, and there's some that are really faint, but it, on the whole they're normal, and we've never had that capability before. Well, that all sounds really interesting. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Woohoo! Thanks for that, Jen.
5: I
3: love the woohoo at the end there. I think we should have more whooping at the end of interviews in general.
0: I agree. Hey, lots of excitement being interviewed on the Jodcast. And just to follow on from that interview with the woohooing, can't promise you any more of that though, we have Stephen Sargent who has exciting new results from Herschel. Hello. Joining me on the JOGcast today is Dr. Stephen Sargent from The Open University. Hello and welcome to the JOGcast. Hello and thanks for having me. It's brilliant. Now, you work on extragalactic surveys of star-forming galaxies. Could you tell me a bit about your research and how you
6: do these surveys? Sure. Uh, Well, I use a lot of space telescope data. So people think of uh, space telescopes as just the Hubble Space Telescope. In fact, that's far from being the case. There are lots of space telescopes. I've used the Akari Space Telescope, a Japanese one. And I'm using now the Herschel Space Observatory, and it's the biggest telescope in space. It's got the biggest mirror of any telescope in space. And with it, we're painting the sky. We're doing the, the widest field survey that we can uh, with it. It's Actually, we're mapping 1% of the sky, and we're looking for bright uh, galaxies bursting with star formation. So we're looking for the formation of galaxies like our Milky Way right out to almost all the way back to the big bang and it's uh, Herschel is fantastically sensitive it's been a really really good mission so we're uh, awash with data and it's uh, it's a great time to be in astronomy when you're just so awash with data so uh, yeah uh, so we're having a, a great time
0: <laughs> and you have two main goals in this survey that you're interested in yourself the mm-hmm. working on Quasars, mm-hmm. and you're also working on gravitational lensing. So, yeah. shall we start off with the quasars? And you can tell first of all, tell us what is a quasar and why are you excited by
6: them? Sure, sure. Well, a quasar is a black hole in the centre of a galaxy. And this black hole is drawing drawing in matter from uh, from this uh, surrounding galaxy, and the matter is falling into the black hole. And by the, uh, the the friction that it's generated in the accretion disk that's forming around the black hole, it gets very very hot. And so it's one of these strange paradoxes that you have the darkest thing in the universe that we know of, a black hole, surrounded by some of the brightest stuff that we know of in the universe. So you uh, this accretion disk can outshine the whole of the rest of the galaxy. So we look for these bright points where the uh, black holes are accreting, and that's uh, telling us where the activity is, where the, the black holes are growing. But there is a mystery associated with these black holes that we haven't yet unpicked, and that's one thing that I'm hoping that the Herschel Space Telescope will be able to tell us about. And that's that the black hole properties are very closely connected to the properties of the galaxy that they're in. So the black hole mass is a fraction of a percent of the uh the, the bulge of a spiral galaxy that it's in or the or the elliptical galaxy that it's in. And yet, despite being a fraction of a percent, and a tiny, tiny fraction of the volume, it's very closely correlated. The masses are very closely correlated with uh, properties of the wider galaxy. So something closely connected the growth of that black hole with the growth, the formation of the galaxy around it. So what we're hoping to do with Herschel is we want to find places where the black holes are growing Uh, so we're finding places where we're seeing this bright accretion around black holes and we're measuring the star formation rates in those quasars so we want to see how and why there are these close mysterious connections between the masses of black holes and the properties of the wider galaxies and we think that Herschel will give us a lot of really useful clues about how this process is working
0: now, galaxies like our Milky Way, for example, go through several periods of star formation. Mm-hmm. Do these galaxies also have the same properties? And do you look at the first star formation? Is that what relates to the black hole mass, or is it all the star formation in the galaxy?
6: Actually, that's a really good and really deep question. Um, we don't know a lot about how many times quasars turn on. One picture could be that there'll be just a, a very small number of very rare events that uh, last... Fair amount of time each. Or another picture of their very very frequent times that their quasar is on, and uh, we don't know a lot about when star formation is going on. So how many, how often the star formation is going on. So, but I think the the likely thing is that they are they go essentially hand in hand, and there'll be a few, a, a handful of really key events where there's a lot of black hole growth and a lot of uh, star formation going on in the host galaxy, and these, uh, and we'll be picking out just those few epochs. in in galaxies uh, throughout most of the history of the universe.
0: And do you have any leading theories of what relates the star formation to the black hole growth?
6: Yeah there are actually lots of theories, in fact it's a really complicated physical process because you've got uh, we've got so much going on, you've got uh, such a range of scales and you've Got such a lot of stuff going on because you can generate gu- uh, winds from the central uh, accreting black hole that can be blowing out the gas, or maybe the the, the gas could be um, encountering other gas and then kinda shocking and triggering more star formation. So the, actually, in principle, it could go either way. Unpicking the physics of how the the the. the the black hole accretion is suppressing or enhancing star formation. It's it's very difficult because of the wide range of scales. Even in just in star formation, it's very hard to figure out uh, what the uh, triggers are and what the, the 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 ratios of the small the low mass objects to the high mass objects are and the, it's what we call the initial mass function. It's just the physics of just star formation on its own is very very hard. And unpicking how the quasar the, the black hole accretion affects it is it's very very complicated so actually what we really need are observational constraints and that's the uh, the, the key thing that we're missing at the moment and if we can find out uh, how these things are uh, linked then we get a, a better handle and in fact we do have uh, some early uh, results already we're finding that the star formation in quasars is uh, not linearly correlated with the uh, black hole accretion. So if you have a a black hole that's accreting twice as much, you don't get twice as much star formation, you get a bit less. And that's already disagreeing with some theoretical models for how this feedback process is working. So uh, it's early stages yet, and so we're hoping that the that, that Herschel will give us a lot more useful insights as time goes on.
0: So yeah, it's really exciting how the star formation rate is linked to the growth, but it's not a one-to-one correlation. So there mm-hmm. must be some other process happening that
6: mm-hmm. is causing this difference. It's, it's wonderful to be at a time when a project is making lots and lots of new discoveries. And it's a really exciting uh, time in far-infrared and submillimeter astronomy now because these uh, facilities are making a whole bunch of Discovery space accessible to us. A whole bunch of discoveries have only just become possible, so it's very, very exciting. And 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 the uh, quasar science is only one sort of science that we're doing with Herschel. The other big thing that we're very interested in at uh, 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 where I work is uh, gravitational lensing. Now, what's happening here is that um, okay. So we are probably sitting in a chair listening to this, right? I mean, we're sitting in chairs here everyone is curving the space-time around them. So sitting in your chair right now, you are curving the space-time around you right now. But its tiny, tiny effect is very, very difficult to measure. It's In fact, for a human, it's impossible to measure. But for a giant astronomical object like the sun, for example, or a galaxy, or a cluster of galaxies, you can detect this warping. And in fact, you can even take an image of... Uh, of a cluster of galaxies and you can see the background galaxies galaxies that you're seeing through this foreground cluster they look warped and stretched and pulled into arcs and why they're pulled into arcs well the reason is is that uh, the foreground cluster is warping the space and time around it so you're seeing the warping of space and time by looking at these distant It's called gravitational lensing And what we're doing with Herschel Is to find These strong gravitational lenses And we've found a really Powerful way of doing it This goes, what is
0: this exciting way?
6: Well, the the trick is That very bright Very luminous Star-forming galaxies are very, very rare And we can exploit that fact There are lots of piddly little things There are very, very few super bright ones So if you see a super bright one, uh, chances are that there's something else going on. So what we think is happening is you've got a piddly little one that's being boosted by this gravitational lensing effect. So what we're finding is we're painting the sky, looking for these very bright, bright, bright star-forming galaxies, and the ones that we see, these are strong gravitational lenses. These are like cosmic telescopes, because... Because the, uh, the gravitational lensing, it makes them brighter and it also stretches the images. So we're getting a, a sharper view of the background distant universe. It's also brighter so that we can uh, study them much, much more easily. Uh, so this is a fabulous new technique.
0: Without this effect of the mm. gravitational lenses, would we be able to see these galaxies that are so far away in the background that are being beamed towards
6: us? Yes, but um, it's terribly hard because they, they're they intrinsically much fainter. And there are surveys that are trying to do this. I mean, there are projects that are trying to do this. I don't want to belittle the excellent work that they're doing, but by exploiting this strong gravitational lensing of, of, of these far-infrared galaxies, uh, we can probe this distant galaxy population in a way that's never been possible before, at least for, for, for far-infrared and sub galaxies. And so this has been the big breakthrough that we've had. You see, it's been very, very hard work finding these strong gravitational lenses and we're here at um uh in manchester and this is the Jodcast, and one of the fantastic results from jodrell bank has been the gravitational lens survey and this has been a really hard piece of work trawling through tens of thousands of galaxies looking for those rare few that are strong gravitational lenses and it's been a uh, and it's a fantastic achievement by the Jodrell Bank, the, 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 the class survey is what it's called. So what we found is that uh, with Herschel, we don't have to sift through tens of thousands. We can get basically 100% selection efficiency. So uh, in our first five candidates, we found all five were strong gravitational lenses. And this was a you know, fantastic, fantastic result. We were very, very excited by this. And so our plan is, uh, this is something we're collaborating with uh, guys here in uh, Jodrell Bank and elsewhere, is to use the new E-Merlin telescope array to follow up these uh, strong gravitational lenses. And so we'll unpick and see what's going on in these these very distant galaxies at much sharper resolution than would otherwise be possible. So it's a, uh, it's a really powerful new technique for finding these uh, sub-millimeter galaxies. So we're very excited.
0: I have a question about this strong lensing. Mm -hmm. Now, some plays in planet hunting, they use gravitational lensing to detect a planet and they say you can't go back and look again. Mm -hmm. How come in in the strong lensing effect, you can go back and do follow-up surveys?
6: Ah, ah, right, right. Yeah, that's because with these planet surveys, what you've got is um, you've got some background star and you've got some foreground thing that's just drifting in front. And as it just lines up perfectly, the foreground star or planet or whatever is is gravitationally boosting the background thing but then it drifts away again now you could if you knew the direction that it was going in and you had a spaceship or something you could go and you could re-observe but that's you know we're kind of short of spaceships so we <laughs> so it's it's kind of <laughs> tricky but but i mean you could in principle i mean it had been proposed i think for for one interplanetary mission that could in principle have reobserved observed uh, microlens planet observation. But um, these are rare, rare opportunities, so it's it's pretty tricky. But with our galaxies, the relative motion's very, very, very slow. So we've got plenty of time to go back. You know, it's eons that it would take. Uh, and it's kind of handy, because uh, 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 then we have the opportunity to make these uh, ex- exquisitely high-resolution images that uh, we would otherwise be... Are completely inaccessible to us.
0: The light from these images have all been distorted in the gravitational lens. Mm-hmm. How do you put all that back together to get and get rid of the foreground object, I assume, you get corrupting your light? Mm-hmm. Is there a way for you to do that to see properly what the galaxy like?
6: Yeah, actually, the... Um, uh, well, here, the, the these, uh, nature of these background galaxies is helping us because they are sub wave-detected galaxies. It turns out that uh, these galaxies very, very dusty, because it's, it's it's dust that is radiating this far-infrared light. This dust also makes the galaxies very red in optical light. So if you look in optical light, basically all that you're seeing are these foreground objects. But when you shift into the infrared light, you see the, uh, the background galaxy appear. It's looking at the differences between what you're seeing in the optical and what you're seeing in the infrared that give you the handle as to what's background and what's foreground so uh we've been taking data with the, the uh, keck telescopes and even with this this gigantic keck telescope we still couldn't detect anything at all from our background uh lensed galaxies but when we looked at it with the infrared camera on the hubble space telescope then we've seen some absolutely exquisite uh beautiful lens configurations beautiful einstein rings that uh, Yes, it's been very very exciting seeing these things.
0: And these, this you've seen these like twenty hours ago for the first time. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Yes. So well, very up to date on this.
6: Very very up to date. So um, my uh, uh, as a uh, guy working at the Open University, Mattia Negrello has uh, uh, just presented these in a conference in um, California just the uh, just yesterday, in fact. And today I'm presenting them <laughs> at Bank the, and at the University of Manchester.
0: That's fantastic. So what is an ice diming? Is that just the lensing? Can you ah. describe these images a bit?
6: Yeah, sure, of course. Well, imagine that you've got a foreground object and you've got a background object exactly lined up behind it. Okay. So the question is, what would you see? Well, there's a symmetry argument that uh, uh, if your foreground thing is symmetrical, s- uh, circularly symmetric, and your background thing is circularly symmetric, say, then the image that you see has to be circularly symmetric because there's nothing in this configuration to give it any preferred direction. And so there has to be a ring shape. So the background object, which is some background splodge, will be stretched into a circle around this foreground object. And this stretching into a circle is is exactly what we're seeing with these... uh, uh, Hubble Space Telescope data that we've literally just half off the press.
0: they are absolutely fantastic data the The images are it's hard to say on a podcast like this just how fantastic an image actually is, but I'm sure we'll try and find a way to show
6: you that image eventually at least yep yeah, when we can when when we've published it and uh, we'll do a press release image and we'll certainly pass it on to you so you can host it on whatever web pages you like.
0: The lens object. I was looking on this image you showed in your talk Mm -hmm. today. It's 11 billion years ago in the past, Mm. or something like that, whereas the uh, the galaxy, what's doing the lensing, is 3 billion years ago, which is a massive difference. Mm. What's quite surprising is those objects in the past, so far away, are producing stars. Are these objects still producing stars now? I mean, it's 11 Uh, billion years ago.
6: Ah, now that's a really good question, and... We think that a star formation will happen in bursts. So probably that burst won't have lasted for that long, and so it will have died away and maybe have a few more bursts in the meantime. But the really subtle thing is that whether it's the same object, because what's happening is that galaxies are colliding with galaxies and merging. So right now, um, our galaxy has uh, uh, galaxies that are orbiting it and being drawn in, So it's accreting the Magellanic Cloud galaxies. And we, ourselves, are falling towards the Andromeda galaxy. And in four or ten billion years, we'll collide. And uh, there'll be uh, some combined giant galaxy that we make. So so let's suppose that there's some uh, astronomer in the distant future. They see uh, our galaxy, they'll see the Andromeda galaxy. And then someone asks the question, well, are these galaxies still forming stars? But by the time that they're observing it, we'll have merged and merged again and probably merged again with other things. And so it becomes quite difficult to 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 say what, to track the identity of an object through cosmic time like that. So it's actually, it's a surprisingly complicated and subtle question. It's about the merger history of galaxies, the star formation history of galaxies. And just even expressing it in words becomes quite tricky.
0: And are these galaxies like what our Milky way-, way is now? Are they spirals or can you tell anything like about them?
6: Uh, it's early days with our lens reconstruction, but they're certainly resolved into knots of star form- star formation and there's, there's structure there that we're seeing. So they're probably the progenitors of elliptical galaxies. But that doesn't mean that they're going to look elliptical at those redshifts. They're going to look like something else.
0: And also, you showed us in your talk, these objects have water lines and CO lines.
6: Yes, yes, there's um, uh, been a very nice result from Alain Armand detecting water from uh, Plata de Beurre in, in these uh, distant galaxies. What you can tell is you can, you can learn about the environment that the molecules are in. You can learn about the densities of the gas. You can learn about how many ionising photons they're seeing, what sort of environment they're in. And the interesting thing is that, uh, from this spectroscopic data, from the, from these, uh, emission lines that we're seeing, it looks like there are, there's an active nucleus in there. So there is an accreting black hole lurking inside this, uh, otherwise star forming galaxy. So this is, uh, this is one of the, this is another example of, of how useful The gravitational lensing is, is that it's much easier to do these observations because of the boosting that this gravitational lensing has given us. Brilliant. What's next? Well, uh, we will be uh, releasing, we already have released some data to the public. And by the public, I mean generally the astronomical community, but anyone can download data from the Herschel Space Telescope. And uh, we have reduced images, you can have a great swathe of the sky that you can uh, now see. And we've got images tailored for the public as well. So GIFs and JPEGs, that sort of thing. So there's there's a lot to rummage and we'll be making more and more data releases as the survey goes on that anyone can download. So go have a play, do please. Oh, lovely pictures. That's mm-hmm. the,
0: great, the great thing about astronomy. You get to see so many pretty pictures and mm-hmm. oh, you've got loads with ice diamonds and everything. In gravitational lensing, you're mm-hmm. looking quite far back yeah. in terms of time mm-hmm. and the early... You're close to the earlier universe, aren't you?
6: Mm. Well, actually, it's one of the um, amazing Things. You can see galaxies through most of the history of the universe. In fact, I contend that cosmologists are much luckier than particle physicists, let's say. Okay, so if you're a particle physicist, you could ask a question, a really fundamental, important, engaging question that could be completely impossible to answer. so if you're interested in M theory or superstring theory or something, your really fundamental interesting questions could be completely inaccessible to experiment. You need gigantic galactic sized particle accelerators to, to do it. And you just, there's no chance you would ever be able to do that. But in cosmology, you can see galaxies nearly all the way back to the Big Bang. And that to me is absolutely staggering that that is possible that the that, that it's technologically feasible that it's affordable that we that we can do it at all is just stunning i i think we have a it, I feel a real privilege to be uh doing cosmology and to have the accessible questions and also right now is a really fantastic exciting time in cosmology because all of the big questions that uh You could ask about the fate of the universe, the content of the universe, uh, how all of the galaxies came together and formed where all the spiral disks came from and uh, how the bulges of spirals came about and how the the links to the black holes in the centres, where it all came from. All of these fundamental questions are being answered right now, so it's a fantastically exciting time in cosmology right now.
0: Well, following on from that, Mm-hmm. If From the Big Bang, there's mm-hmm. no, there's just the building blocks of matter and there's no stars or anything like that. But suddenly, then you suddenly see these galaxies appearing. Mm-hmm. How did they suddenly well be there?
6: Yeah, well, that's a really deep question. It's uh, what generated the first light in the universe? So you have the, uh, the early universe, so the universe eventually is expanding, becomes transparent, it's dark, there's nothing in it, it's just gas. And then the, uh, the gas condenses down and forms the first stars and the first galaxies. So, I and mean, gravity is the reason that these things happen, is that, uh, uh, it just needs slight perturbations from uniformity. It's very unstable to form in clumps of stuff. And so you, uh, stuff falls together and, uh, forms the first stars and the first galaxies. But as to what they looked like, the very, very first luminous things in the universe, we still don't know. And we, we'll have to wait for telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope to give us the first insights. Also the square kilometer array when that comes that will give us the first insights. So insight. wow these
0: lens objects that uh eleven billion years ago aren't even close to being the first objects. There's a long way yeah. to go yet.
6: They're we're not uh yeah, they're they're very early and they are um most of the way to the Big Bang. But there is this small window of time when the very, very first things um, I mean, as it, a fraction of the history of the universe, it's a really tiny shard, but it's a really interesting tiny shard at the very, very earliest times. And we'll be probing that with the next generation of facilities. And that's, as I say, it's a fantastically exciting time.
0: Another part of your life is you're a science consultant for Bango's The Theory and oh, other TV shows. Oh my goodness, yes, yes. Can you tell us, like, what do you do and how do you come up with concepts? Oh, right. Oh, well,
6: what we do, I'm leading a team. It's not just me. I'm leading a team of uh, about a dozen people who are consulting on this Bango's The Theory TV show. The first thing we do is is check that stuff is working. The the scripts that they're going to be talking through are factually correct. And we can also give them pointers on where the hot science is, because the the BBC, the broadcasters, are not scientists themselves. So... They ask us, you know, what's hot, where's stuff going, where are the exciting areas? Although, of course, the BBC have the editorial say. I mean, it's quite right that, that we, we ourselves, are not broadcasters. So. Uh, but so we check for factual errors, and uh, mostly it works out and stuff doesn't slip through, but uh, there have been a few things that have been not quite perfect, but, hey, it's telly. <laughs> it's telly. It's telly, and it's brilliant telly. It's really, really good. And what I really love is that... Uh, especially actually with the most recent series of Van Gogh's The Theory, is you've got a... Uh, it's, it's the studio discussions, that's what I really like. It's, you have intelligent people talking intelligently about scientific topics at a time which is opposite Coronation Street. And that's just fantastic. I mean, it's what the... I mean, you could say it's what the BBC is for. It's just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant that it's bringing science in a completely accessible way to, to a very, very it's a, to a huge audience, yeah, millions and millions of people, so it's, it's 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 wonderful being involved in that
0: and do you have any favorite ideas? Have you come up with any of the ideas for this show?
6: Yes, some uh I can't say too much because there'll be stuff that'll be broadcast a little Ooh. bit later so so we're in discussions already now about the series five of Banggo's the theory and i and i I like the way that uh, the the series has has grown it's now got a lot more. It, it doesn't need to be showy or to impress, it's it's now a really thoughtful and interesting content. Uh, particularly in the last series, there was uh, an item on genetically modified foods, and that was uh, really thoughtful, engaging content. And there's more on, uh, there's more, I can't go into the details on that, but I mean, there's uh, astronomy is something they're particularly interested in on Bangosa theory so uh, I would uh, keep watching
0: <laughs> I feel like I should be on Doctor Who now and saying spoilers or something <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, <laughs> Spoilers Spoilers <yeah. laughs> <laughs> and have you had any fa- really favourite things that's been on the show
6: Well in series one they uh, got Marek Cooler and uh, flung him around in, or, or Marek was flinging around one of the presenters in a dark matter demonstration that was, uh, <laughs> uh, that was, that was kind of fun to watch
0: oh fantastic oh, it sounds like such an exciting thing to be able to consult on a TV show as popular as that I mean it's a fantastic show I love it
6: yeah it's it's and, and broadcasting has a, a very different set of intellectual values it's uh, wonderful to be involved in that, such a, uh, an alien intellectual discipline as as broadcasting and in fact Jogcast
0: too it's brilliant <laughs> do you know what it's been an absolute pleasure being on the JOGCAST. it's been fascinating it's brilliant right thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun thanks for that Libby and now for the bit we can't fit in anywhere else—the odds and ends section of the show.
7: Okay, so first we have some uh, exciting results from Gravity Probe B, which is a space gyroscope, uh, which was launched in 2004. Even though it started being commissioned in 1963, can you imagine, like, a 40-year-old project? What launch- were they doing for 40 years? Uh, I think they were developing the technology mostly because, you know, between the time they have the idea and the time they have the technology, it it takes some time. But the the telescope was launched in 2004 and has been observing for six years. It was decommissioned in December 2010. It was looking basically at the effect of the rotation of the Earth on space-time and how, according to Einstein's general theory of relativity, if the Earth is rotating in space-time, it's like... If it was rotating a little bit like in honey, it would make space-time twist. And so if you're looking at a point in space, a fixed point in space, if you want to stay on the same position, you'll have to slightly rotate, which is why they used the gyroscope telescope to do that. This telescope was looking at one star, I.M. Picassi, and it looked at it for a very long time, and it was recording if it has to, had to rotate to stay in position with the star. And it did, which means the space-time was rotating, which confirmed Einstein's theory, which is pretty exciting. Woo!
3: (laughs) (laughs) So so the Earth's rotation is actually making the space-time around it slightly swirly-shaped.
7: Yes, exactly. That's the idea.
3: That's cool. I'm glad we know that.
7: I'm, I'm mostly glad that you can actually see it and test it. I never thought that it was testable. So we must be seeing really, really, really tiny changes. It in does. The it does, but it can still record it, which is really impressive.
3: So that is a really exciting new test of general relativity. That's
0: what they've been waiting the forty years for, then I guess. Pretty much, I think.
3: On the thirtieth of April, there was a very unusual case of astronomy coming to the astronomers, when a meteorite smashed through somebody's roof in a small village in Poland. It was actually on a farm. It broke through the roof and then hit the ground and smashed into a number of pieces, oh, and. Gosh. Yeah, well, fortunately not. It didn't hit anybody. That would have been really unlucky, I think. I've never heard of anyone getting hit by a meteorite. But um the farm owner, according to what I've read, Mrs. Alfreda, heard the sound, and then she found it on the ground and actually picked up a one kilogram piece of this thing, and it was still warm, and the end was sort of rounded because it had been moulded by heat of the atmosphere, and I suppose that's how it made it through, because most uh, meteorites that size would just burn up.
7: You should definitely play the lottery, because I think... Chances of having a meteorite go through your roof compared to the chances of winning the lottery.
3: Probably yeah. smaller than winning the lottery.
7: So what are they going to do
0: with this bag of sugar weighted meteorite?
3: Yes, it is roughly the weight of a big bag of sugar. Um, it's been taken away to be analysed at, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but the Rock Law University of Technology in Poland. So they're going to analyse its chemical composition try and see Ooh, where it came from.
0: Exciting times. So we can find out if it's from... The debris disk of our solar system formation, if it's pre-solar system, or if it was created in some processing events of the comets. Oh, yay! I might get to see some of this data. That's really exciting.
7: I wonder if people collect these things. I know that people collect uh, cars on which meteorites have fallen. I don't know about houses, roofs. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a bit of like, space-consuming
3: that piece of roof could end up in a museum apparently that's probably where the meteorite is going to be in the long term
0: oh wow cool there is a few exciting events coming up first in In intech in hampshire near winchester they are doing a series of events for the deaf and hard of hearing on the 22nd of may so this includes planetarium shows and talks with sign language and also subtitles. Also, other events. Mark, I think, has got the latest news for this.
3: Yeah, on the 15th of June, there's going to be a lunar eclipse. Mm -hmm. And, yep, that's definitely a whooping event, I think. And the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester is once again letting us, that's uh, University of Manchester Astronomers, in to uh, do things in their museum, give talks and planetarium shows, and help them set up various events, which you can come down and see.
7: It's going to be very exciting. So if you're around Manchester... Do come and see us. Uh, You won't regret it. It's going to be taking
3: place from 5 to 9 p.m. Obviously, the lunar eclipse, being as it's near midsummer, is not actually going to be visible until about 10 p.m. So, as a special treat, we're all going off to a bar on the 23rd floor of the tallest building in Manchester, the Hilton Hotel, from where we hope to see the moon rise in eclipse if it's not cloudy.
7: Let's really hope it's not cloudy. I really want to see that eclipse, and I really want to see it from the Hilton.
3: You get an awesome view. You can see all the way to the Lovell Telescope, and apparently even Blackpool Tower on a clear day.
7: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, so we were up there preparing for this event, and we were looking, and we could just see this white sheen on the horizon, and we're thinking, hmm, that's in the direction of Georgeville Bank. Is it the telescope? And then we saw it move position, so it's just on the edge of what you can resolve, but it was pretty cool. So seeing the moon like that will be fantastic.
3: The event is aimed at ages 14 and up, and you'll have to be over 18 to come into the bar, which is called Cloud 23.
0: So we hope to see some of you there.
3: Yep, you're all invited.
0: If you want to know more about lunar eclipses or any other questions about astronomy, you can write into the show, and that leads nicely on to Ask an Astronomer with Tim.
5: So the first question this month is from Greg, and he's basically asking about the relationship between maths and astronomy, and he wants to know... Um, basically, whether maths is essential to the pursuit of astronomy, whether it be as a professional astronomer or as a hobbyist astronomer. Well, I think, uh, in the latter case, if you, if you're really looking at, um, doing astronomy as a, as a hobby, really, in your spare time, then def, you definitely don't need maths. It's, you can basically just go out there, use your eyes for the first thing. Um, get yourself a pair of binoculars, get yourself a small telescope. Um, you can do interesting things. You can work out, you know, I mean, one of the most exciting things I did with my own telescope was, was finding, um, the Crab Nebula with just, just from my back garden with a, with a small telescope. And it's not a very bright thing, but basically you just get, you know, get some software like Stellarium or something like that. Um, find out where it is relative to the bright stars and then use your, Use your telescope to sort of find the patterns of bright stars and work your way from brighter to fainter and fainter stars until eventually you spot this sort of fuzzy object. And, and, you know, to be honest, even though what you see is nothing like a spectacular to what you see with a, you know, in the, you know, on the web, you know, with HST images of the Crab Nebula or something, the very fact that you found it yourself is where all the enjoyment is, I think. So there's, there's definitely something to be done there without maths. If you want to be a professional astronomer, then yep, sure, you do, you do need maths. But even though, uh, the, the, the range of capability of professional astronomers in mathematics is quite, is quite high. Uh, so some people are, you know, b- basically very mathematical. Some people, you know, they're competent, um, but they don't need, you know, they don't need mathematics particularly, uh, at an advanced level to do the research that they do. F- for myself, I actually started off doing a, I did a PhD in astronomy that was purely theoretical, so it was entirely a mathematical exercise um, initially, basically pen and paper mathematics, um, and then uh, developed into a sort of computational application um, of, a, of a model. Uh, and I never even looked through a telescope to be honest during the whole of my PhD. These days I, I do, but uh, it's sort of you know it just varies from one 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 person to another as to what you need. So the second question is from Willie Wilson, and it's all about our Milky Way galaxy and other galaxies. Uh, first of all, he asks, is the plane of our solar system the same as the plane of the Milky Way? Well, um, you'll know that most of the planets in our solar system orbit in basically the same flat plane. Um, so, uh, and the Milky Way, if you've seen the Milky Way, you'll see it as a bright band of light running across the sky. That's basically the disk, the flattened disk of our Milky Way galaxy that we're sort of seeing edge on. Um, well, those two planes are not, uh, they're not the same. So in fact, our, our solar system is about 60 degrees um, to the plane of the Milky Way. So we're sort of at an angle, an angle to it. Um, he then asks about, um, is the matter, gas or stars lying above and below the galactic plane? And if so, how is this matter distributed? Well, as I say, the, the our galaxy is a, it's a disk galaxy. So most of the uh, stars and Gas and dust are actually concentrated into this really quite um, thin disc. It's something like um, for the, for the stellar disc is something like thirty thousand parsecs across, um, thirty kiloparsecs across in in diameter. Um, but its thickness at its thickest, it's, re- it's really only about something like a kiloparsec across. The 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 dust and gas disk sort of extends farther out in terms of diameter than the than the stellar disc, but they're still relatively thin compared to the diameter. And when you look at it in in detail, um there is actually a very thin disk, sort of in the middle of the disc, if you like, uh, which is made of the coldest um gas, for example, the sort of molecular hydrogen. And then as the gas sort of gets warmer, whether it's been um maybe this sort of stuff that's been ionized and heated up by Hot young stars—that sort of puffs up, as you might imagine, as it gets hotter—and so you get a slightly thicker disc. So, there's, so there is a certainly structure to the disc, um, but most of the uh, gas and dust and stars is in this relatively relatively thin disc. Um, however, that is that does appear to be embedded in a sort of spheroidal, more or less spherical halo, um, which does contain some stars and does contain some gas, um, but is more is dominated by dark matter. So most of the mass of our galaxy is actually in this, in this so-called dark matter halo. And then, um, Willie also asks about, um, why is there a central bulge in our galaxy? If you've seen pictures of other spiral galaxies, disk galaxies, seen edge-on particularly, you'll see that the central part sort of bulges out. So you've got this sort of thinnish disk, um, but with this big central bulge in the middle. Uh, and our galaxy is no different. It does appear to have this central bulge. Now, to be honest, the, the this is still discussed. The origin of bulges in, in, in galaxies is still discussed. Um, traditionally, we'd think about them as having the old stars, um, whereas the youngest stars are being made still continually in the disk as the sort of spiral waves pass through it. Um, and so the bulge probably formed early, uh, maybe in as little as maybe a billion years, um, but about 10 billion years ago, early on in the formation of the galaxy, and the disk sort of formed later and continues to form new stars. Um, but as we've sort of studied these things in more detail, we've realised it's more complicated, as you might imagine. For example, our galaxy, that bulge, you know, is basically bar-like. It's sort of, you know, it's not a spherical bulge, it's sort of extended along an axis. Uh, and it could well be that perhaps in our galaxy, but certainly in other galaxies, um, some of these bulges are actually, uh, really their instabilities which are causing the sort of inner part of the disk to sort of puff up as this sort of bar instability develops. Um, but it still seems like the the stars are much older in these bulges than they are in the, in the sort of gassy disk farther out, which has got new star formation. Following on from that question, we've got a question from Jim Momans, who's in Virginia, and he says, while landing in a plane on a very windy day, I began to wonder if galaxies wobble. Many galaxies rotate, ours does, do galaxies also pitch, yaw, and roll as they move through space? Um, so it's a, it's a good question. Yep, we've just been talking about our our galaxy and having this disk. The orbits of um, stars within that disk—they basically orb- we're orbiting around the middle of our Milky Way as we orbit round and round that disk. Um, but in fact, it turns out that that's not—it's not a very uniform situation. So in fact, our our galaxy, our disk galaxy, and others that we can see in space are warped. Um, so if you were to sort of see, you can see this pictures of some galaxies seen edge on. Instead of seeing a sort of flat horizontal plane for the disk, um, uh, they're more like a sort of, uh, slightly S shape. So one side of the disk would sort of bend down and the other end of the disk would, would bend up. Um, and that seems to be the case for our own as well. It's most obviously seen in, uh, in observations with radio telescopes of the atomic hydrogen, but, uh, it seems to be the case for the stars as well. So the way to, I guess one way to visualize this is to think about the orbits of the stars around and around the Milky Way as circles. And so you get this big sort of set of concentric circles as you move out from the middle. And then if you took each of those uh, rings basically that you've got for each orbit and you sort of tilted them at an angle, um, and you did it in a way, in a sort of smooth way so that you could, you sort of created this sort of S-shaped warp. That's what, we, that's what it looks like the disks are warped like. And it actually seems like the the you know the axis through which you tilt it can rotate as well as you work your way out work your way out through the galaxy so you don't all sort of tilt them in exactly the same direction you can rotate the 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 angle at which you tilt these um, these orbits so I guess that's one way in which um, galaxies don't rotate in the way in the way you'd um, expect you might ask why are these things warped and of course that's what astronomers um, do ask uh, and the current um, Current ideas uh, are focused around the fact that um, we think that that galaxies, you know, formed in this sort of hierarchical sort of merging. So smaller galaxies merged together over the history of the universe to make larger galaxies. Um, and that would result basically in, in uh, a galaxy like our own is not just isolated in space. There are other galaxies that merge with ours. And even now we can see these sort of dwarf galaxies that have been ripped apart as they sort of plough into our own Milky Way. The Andromeda galaxy is coming towards us, for example, and will merge with us in about three billion years or so. And when that happens, you can imagine that that basically that the gravitational influence of this merging other mass composed of stars, gas and dark matter actually causes a perturbation on the orbits of the, of the stars and the gas in, in the other galaxy. And that can basically induce these warps and so you've got a situation where, where, yeah, you definitely can have a situation where a galaxy is sort of spinning in space, but it's, but it's basically getting, uh, kicked and pushed and pulled by all these other interactions as well as its own, uh, naturally generated instabilities within, within its own, uh, within its own structure. So yeah, I would say they do, um, they do, they can sort of pitch and yaw if you like, but basically because of the interactions with other merging galaxies. And just one other thing on that topic, um, we talked about disk galaxies a lot, but but quite uh, maybe about a third of galaxies are actually elliptical um, rather than being flattened disks. Uh, and we think they're actually uh, rather grandly called triaxial ellipsoids, a triaxial ellipsoid. Um, if you imagine a rugby ball or, uh, in Jim's case, in Virginia there, maybe an American football, um, is a sort of egg-shaped thing. If you could sort of sit on that uh, and squash it, then you've got a sort of triaxial ellipsoid. Um, and the orbits of the stars in those are more randomised than, say, in a disk galaxy, where they're all sort of going round and around the centre. They're basically not all in the same plane. And the reason for that is because we think that these elliptical galaxies are formed by the mergers of disk galaxies. So if you took two disk galaxies, like, say, Andromeda and, and the Milky Way, and they sort of merge together and they'll be at a sort of random angle to each other then you can imagine the gravitational influence on the stars as they sort of uh, hit hit into each other that causes the orbits to sort of be mixed up and that results in something that's quite a you know can be quite a complex sort of uh, shape that can even sort of be tumbling if you like as it as it moves through space because again because of the the sort of gravitational the torques that are acting on it because of these interactions Next question is from Ian Kennedy, and he asks, um, if the universe is expanding and everything is moving apart, how come galaxies collide? Well, it's a good question, of course, and if you're not being careful, you'll hear, you'll hear people say that what Hubble discovered was that when he looked out into space uh, and looked at all these uh, galaxies uh, other than our own and measured the red shifts, basically measured the, the Doppler shift of the, the light that's coming from them, he found that they were all redshifted, and therefore that all these galaxies are moving away from us. That's what somebody would say if they weren't being careful. Well, they ought to say, um, at the very least, is to say that all the distant galaxies are moving away from us, because as we just mentioned, the Andromeda galaxy is actually moving towards us. So it's definitely not red-shifted, it's blue-shifted. Uh, and if you were being even more careful, you'd probably not even say uh, the distant galaxies are moving away from us, you'd probably say uh, clusters of galaxies are moving away from us. And the reason for all this is basically because uh, if galaxies are relatively close by then gravity basically wins over the sort of cosmic expansion uh, and so basically the gravity between you know for example the the milky way and andromeda and other galaxies in our local group we're in a we're in a group or a small cluster basically where we're orbiting one another and we might actually be heading towards one another and and, and merge in the future um, but if you pick that sort of group or small, that cluster, and you picked another cluster at a much larger distance, then those clusters would be moving away from each other due to the expansion of the universe. And basically the speed, if you pick sort of two galaxies in a group or a cluster um, that are orbiting one another or orbiting the centre of the cluster, basically, then the typical the typical mass of a cluster... Um, would tell you the typical speeds at which the galaxies are moving within it. So just like the you know the speed of the planet orbit planets orbiting the sun is determined by the mass of the sun largely, and um, that dominates, and that's what uh, causes you know gives you the force of gravity that keeps a, a planet in orbit. That's that's what will actually determine the speed of its orbit. So you can get the speeds of these uh, galaxy orbits from the mass of the, the cluster, and they are typically something like uh, several hundred kilometers per second maybe 300 kilometres per second, say, is the speed at which a galaxy moves within a cluster. Now, if you know anything about um, the expansion of the universe, you might know about Hubble's law. And what Hubble uh, found in Hubble's law is he found that the speed at which um, these distant galaxies are moving away from us is proportional to their distance. And that's a natural consequence of of an expanding universe model, where every point's moving away from every other point, and at some distant time in the past, every point was on top of every other point. So you can actually use Hubble's law, which just tells you that the speed at which they're moving away from us is equal to proportional to distance, and the proportionality constant is called Hubble's constant. So v equals H naught d, where v is velocity, H naught is Hubble's constant, and d is the distance. So you could say, okay, well, if uh, if I want the Hubble expansion to dominate over this sort of motion of galaxies within clusters, then I want the speed. Due to the expansion of the universe in Hubble's law to be bigger than something like 300 kilometres per second and you can stick into that equation what we know of Hubble's constant at the moment, what we've measured uh, and you can work out basically that that for that to dominate um, for the for the expansion velocity due to the, due to the expansion of the universe to dominate over the velocities in clusters then the distance needs to be uh, something like uh, several tens of megaparsecs, millions of parsecs away, so maybe 30 or 40 megaparsecs, then you know that uh, anything beyond about that distance the so-called peculiar velocities, the sort of uh, random components of velocities due to motions of galaxies and clusters is much smaller than the, the velocity due to the expansion of the universe Question from David Entwistle who um, is basically asking about the arrangement of new radio telescope systems, he's talking about things like uh, SKA square kilometer array, low far low frequency array uh, and so on uh, and he's saying, looking at the arrangement of the aerials in the various new radio telescope systems, it looks fairly random. Uh, why is that, and how is the arrangement decided upon? Well, uh, basically, all these sorts of systems, whether it be LOFAR, whether it be email in here in the UK, whether it be uh, SKA, they're all interferometers. So basically, what we want, what we do is we take signals from individual elements, whether they look like aerials or whether they look like dishes individual telescope dishes, and we combine those signals in pairs. So if any of you have heard of Young's double slit experiment, it's a bit like that. Um, you take these two signals from the, from, a, each, from a pair of telescopes and you combine them together. And so if you think about this big distribution of uh, a- antennas, the, the the sort of telescopes, um, or the aerials, for example, and you, they're spread around and you combine all the different pairs together, you get many different pairs if you've got lots of elements, when you do that, that's how, that's how we make the image. But basically, the, the things that are important there are the separations of the, the two elements and the angle of the two elements, a line joining the two elements as sort of projected onto the sky. And the separation tells us what the uh, resolution of that, uh, element per is. So the farther apart the two elements, the sort of finer detail we would see. Um, So the sharper the view, the closer together uh, the two elements, that's sensitive to the sort of broader, um, sort of low frequency, if you like, broader structures, more blurred out structures on the sky. Uh, Long spacings, large spacings between elements give you the finer detail. So what you'd want in any good interferometer system is a combination of both short spacings and long spacings and all the ones in between. And of course, you know, a single giant dish has all spacings, right? Because basically it's got every element across the whole surface of the dish. It's got tiny spacings between very neighbouring parts of the dish, and it's got the very long spacings between opposite sides of the dish. So an array of these elements has to have a mix of short spacings and long spacings. But also, um, the angle between any two pairs, what you want is a mix of different angles. So you're sensitive to variations in the brightness on the sky that um, are directed along different direc- uh, directions in the sky. Excuse me. Yeah, so that's what you're trying to do. And of course, the problem is that you're always limited by cost. So you, you you're going to have a limited number of elements. So that's the first thing. So in the case of e-Merlin, we've only got up to seven telescopes. For SKA, hopefully, we'll have thousands of elements, Um, so we're a bit better off there. Um, But that's one limitation, how many you've got. So you do the best you can with the number you've got. And the other limitations are things like um, uh, the terrain. So if you're spreading them across a large area, you've got to have somewhere suitable to site these these elements you've also got infrastructure costs you've got data transport costs because you've got to link these things together uh, and typically what happens for example with SKA people have been modelling what basically you can model what quality of image you get by positioning the antenna in in, in various different uh, patterns and at the moment we've got sort of um, a sort of pseudo-random Gaussian distribution in the central core so pseudo-random it's not, in, not exactly random um, positioning. Gaussian means that there's more of them spaced closer together in the middle and then the spacings get slightly larger as you go farther out. And then actually there's these sort of logarithmic spiral arms that basically spiral out from the middle. And you can, you know, you can try and calculate this analytically, but also these days you would do that computationally and work out what the most efficient way of positioning these elements is to get a good mix of short spacings at Medium spacings, long spacings, and a good mix of angles between all the various pairs and again, as I say, it does depend on how you're going you know, to actually connect together these individual elements to make the various different units. so it's not trivial, but hopefully that's the uh, that's the basic point good mix of spacings, good mix of angles, uh, and that's what'll give you the best quality image. Okay, the final question this month um, is from Mark Randalls. And he asks about uh, the New Horizons space probe, which is on its way to Pluto. And he says, when can we expect to begin to get pictures of Pluto uh, using the New Horizons probe that are of better quality and resolution than the ground-based and Hubble pictures so far obtained? Well, yeah, New Horizons is on its way to Pluto. It's actually launched in in January of two thousand and six, and it should arrive at Pluto in uh, two thousand and fifteen. Basically, so it's. Uh, as he says, it's about, uh, just over halfway there now. Well, um, well, let's just have a look at, uh, the sort of quality and resolution. So that's the sharpness of, say, the Hubble pictures of Pluto. They're actually not that great. Um, and to illustrate why, um, the resolution of Hubble's cameras, um, the pixels are about, uh, 0.05 arc seconds across. Um, now an arc second is one 3600th of a degree. Uh, you know, and the, the full moon is half a degree across. So these are, you know, very, very tiny uh, pixels, which is why you're getting a very nice sharp images of the sky with, with Hubble, obviously flying above the atmosphere to get above atmospheric blurring. Um, but Pluto uh, currently is about 31 astronomical units away. So an astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the sun. So it's 31 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun away from us at the moment, um, which is about 4.6 billion kilometres away. And the diameter of Pluto is only 2,300 kilometres, smaller than the Moon. So if you work that out, it turns out that the sort of the angular diameter of Pluto, so the angle it would sort of measure on the sky, if you sort of pointed at the top of Pluto and then moved your arm to point at the bottom of Pluto, with the angle through which your arm would move is only about 0.1 arc seconds so that's a tenth of a 3600th of a degree so in terms of comparing that to hubble we said hubble's pixels were about 0.05 so basically pluto is two hubble space telescope pixels across so you're not going to get a great image of pluto with the Hubble space telescope and the sort of best images you've you might have seen on the web um, are sort of reconstructed. There's been some sort of clever image processing that basically tries to show you some surface details on Pluto, but they're really very, very crude. So, yeah, you'd think that New Horizons is on its, on its way there. Obviously, at some point, it'll start getting better pictures than, um, than the Hubble Space Telescope can get from here, from Earth, basically. Now, onboard, uh, New Horizons, the, the highest resolution camera, um, is a thing called LORI. LORRI, which is the long-range reconnaissance imager. So the sort of resolution of LORRI is twenty times worse than HST. Now you might think, oh, why is it? Why is it so bad? Well, one reason it's so bad is actually because the telescope aperture, the telescope that's used, the sort of lens, if you like, the telescope that's used to image onto the camera in LORRI is only a twenty-one centimeter aperture telescope, whereas Hubble. Is a 2.4 meter aperture telescope. So, and the bigger the aperture of the telescope, just as we were just discussing with the with the elements in a radio telescope array, the the far the bigger the the farther apart the elements are on your dish, if you like, in your mirror. In this case, uh, the higher resolution you get, the finer detail you see. So, because Hubble's got a much bigger mirror, that gives it much higher resolution. And also, it depends on the actual physical size of the pixels on your camera, on your chip as well, in your CCD. So, given that Lorry is 20 times worse than HST, it would need to be sort of 20 times closer to get an equivalent resolution. And so, um, distance from Earth to Pluto is currently uh, about 31 AU. So, you'd actually need to be something like, like, my calculations suggest that you'd need to be only about 1.6 AU away um, to be equivalent to the resolution, for the resolution of Lorry to be equivalent to the resolution of Hubble. So it needs to be getting quite close, 1.6 Earth-Sun distances away from Pluto before it starts to be equivalent to Hubble. Uh, Its current uh, distance away from Pluto is, is about 12 astronomical units. So it's a while yet. And in fact, if you have a look on the web, on New Horizons' website, you'll find that they say they'll start resolving surface features in the summer of 2014. So unfortunately, we've still got another three years or so to wait before we start to see these sort of, uh, these these resolution of the sort of surface light and dark patterns on Pluto. Obviously, by the time that uh, New Horizons gets to Pluto, then it's going to be so close up that, in fact, we're going to get some stunning pictures of Pluto with it. Uh, But not for a while yet, I'm afraid. OK, that's it for Ask an Astronomer for another month. Um, If you'd like to uh, send in your questions for next time, do so by all the various usual routes.
0: Thanks for that, Tim. Now we're on to the feedback section of the show where we round up all the posts, emails, etc. we have got in the last
3: couple of weeks. We want to say get well soon to Mark Randalls who sent us a letter and also thanks very much for your question.
0: On the forum we have Earth Unit who would like to say how great it was listening to the Jodcast with his new
3: t-shirt.
7: On Twitter I would like to send a big thank to uh, my friend Polaris.ca who uh, advertised the Jodcast for our friends in Canada. So hello to any new listeners in Canada.
3: And on Facebook, Susan Kelly got in touch and said that we had a really action-packed episode for May 2011. Two conferences, heaps of interviews, and Stuart hurling himself in front of a bus, which she says was worth it. So um, we'll we'll pass that on to Stuart. Obviously, the bus wasn't really moving very quickly at the time.
0: No Stuarts or buses were injured in the making of the Jogcast. So that's it for the show this time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
3: On the forum at forum.jodcast.net
0: On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook At Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast
3: On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast
7: On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast So thank you very much to Haley Gomez, Karen Masters and Stefan Sargent for their interview.
3: The
0: editors were Mark Perver, Melny Jondra, Jen Gupta and Tim O'Brien.
3: And the producer was Libby Jones.
7: So until next time, draw on.
3: Bye. Bye.